Let's have a look at Mark 11, beginning at the start of the chapter through to the end of verse 11, page 823, if you have the same Bible, or you can read on the screen. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied in a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Good morning. Uh, as Thank you, David, for introducing me. My name is Andrew, and it is a great privilege to be here with you this morning. Thanks for the invitation to be part of this gathering together. I've got two purposes here this morning. The first is also to thank you for your support of Luke and Jane, Ezra, Lily, Amy and Isaac over these last number of years. Thank you for caring for them, for praying for them, for supporting them financially. Thank you for doing that with the security concerns that they were as well. You've done that without being able to openly talk about where they are or always what they're doing. And so you've learned to read between the lines and still care for them and pray for them. So thank you for doing that in such a meaningful way. The other purpose I've got this morning, which I, I consider a great privilege, is this opportunity to, uh, to encourage the spread of the gospel that is happening right here from Camberwell South all the way to the ends of the earth. I'm sure you're committed to that gospel going out, the good news that God is near and available through the responding to the person and message of Jesus. Uh, and I've been given the privilege of opening up for us this morning this passage from Mark chapter 11. Uh, it's part of your sermon series as Jesus enters Jerusalem. And we're going to see this morning both the majesty of Jesus and the meekness of Jesus. We're going to talk about what that is, uh, what it means about Jesus' character that is not just in word but actually in the way he acts. Uh, in bringing salvation, in fact, without the kind of character we see in Jesus here, it would have been impossible. And then I'd like to apply it to us as his followers, uh, as we are on the same mission to see people come to know this same Jesus. So I'm going to structure this around three things this morning. Is this a cloak and dagger Messiah? Is this a cloak and dagger Messiah? How Jesus challenges our understanding of a king or a leader and finally, meekness and majesty in mission. Let's look at this passage. 
Is this a cloak and dagger Messiah before us? Uh, as you read this opening bit and you read in verses 1 to uh, verses uh, 5, this going into, into Bethany, Bethpage, and going and finding this cult and the Lord needs it, this language. What's going on here? Have you got in your mind a James Bond or Mission Impossible moment? What kind of music's playing? Is it being done around corners, dark corners? Have the, has this disciple had to put on a hood to hide their identity? Is it being done through secret messages? What is going on here? Why are there messages in cults? What's going on? Well, Jesus is in danger. Sometimes I think we read the Gospels and we just kind of read them, oh yes, and Jesus goes off to Jerusalem. But no, Jesus is actually in danger. He's been predicting his death for a while now. And he's actually predicting his death both because there's a purpose for that, but actually because he knows he is in danger. Uh, In fact, by the time we get to Mark chapter 14, the authorities will make that very clear in verse 1. We need to get rid of Jesus. Bethany, uh, Jesus is entering a place that he's actually very well known in, Bethany. This is actually one of his centers of ministry, very important one because we know from the Gospels that's where Mary and Martha live. And we know from John's Gospel this is where Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is a very important city, uh, village, sorry, just outside Jerusalem. And so Jesus knows that in that city people know who he is. Not only that, he's about to enter a city, Jerusalem, that is full, full to overflowing, because it's Passover. Thousands of people have come to Jerusalem for the Passover, the most important uh, festival of the Jewish people. In fact, at that moment, history tells us, as we read some of the historians, that during this week, around this time, 20,000 lambs, were slaughtered for the Passover in just this week in the temple precincts. 20,000 lambs. Josephus says that at this time, during this last phase before the temple's destroyed, in the city, 250,000 lambs were being slaughtered in this week. Just think about how many people there are in this city. How much, uh, uh, how many people have crowded in? And if you know anything about the Romans, the last thing they want is a conflict. The last thing they want is anything to go wrong. They want their Roman peace, which is basically obey us or die. Nothing to go wrong. The tension is high. Jesus is coming into this. The authorities, the Jewish authorities are worried about what's going to happen. The Roman authorities worry. There's a huge melting pot of people there. Now, Jesus in this seems to be doing something that's kind of making it more cloak and dagger, doesn't he? Go find this cult. The Lord needs it. But I want to suggest to you, firstly, Jesus is taking control of this situation. He is the one who is going to the cross intentionally as he plans to. He's not avoiding anything there, but he's taking care. And as he does this, this is not just cloak and dagger. Jesus is actually sending a very clear message to people through his actions. And those messages are coming from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. Because as Jesus says that he is the Lord needs it, and as he says go and untie a cult, he's sending messages to the people. He's sending a message to them that if they, as they know their scriptures, begins actually in Genesis chapter 49. Because in Genesis chapter 49, Jude, uh, uh, 
Jacob blesses all of his sons. And in Genesis chapter 49, in his blessing to to Judah, Jacob says that this son, your scepter will not be lost. You will be in the. This will be a line of a king, and he mentions a tethered colt there, as an image of what that will look like. The second image and passage that Jesus is picking up is in Zechariah chapter nine, a much later prophet who's talking about the return of the king, the return of God's chosen one, the Messiah. And Zechariah talks about the king, the Messiah, coming into Jerusalem riding on a colt or a donkey. And just to add to that, the sign around this, not from the Old Testament but the New, we have here this healing of the blind Bartimaeus, which comes from the Old Testament. Just before this passage in chapter 10, Jesus heals a blind man, which was a sign in the Old Testament of the Messiah coming, the healing of those who are blind. And so the crowd actually get this message. That's why in verse 6 they don't stop Jesus and they then follow through with proclaiming Jesus to be a king. They join in. For all Jesus making sure he's in control of this situation, he's actually very clearly declaring who he is. In amidst all the tension and the danger... Jesus is declaring who he is. He is saying very clearly, I am the Messiah. That is, I am chosen by God. I am in the line of the Davidic king, the one you have been waiting for. And I want you to see all of this majesty and importance as I enter Jerusalem at this very important point, a festival that reminds the people of God's great rescue out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the blood of the Lamb. It is actually very loud and clear. Jesus isn't making this up. He is actually following Scripture. But you could say, well, hold on a sec. Surely he's just picked that up and he's following it uh, so that people get those signs. No, there's something else going on here. You see, Jesus is more scriptural than the crowd. And there's one part of this sign that they're kind of choosing not to see to not focus on because Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt or a donkey see a king should enter Jerusalem on a very large horse a stallion a war horse if you are the ruler that's what the expectation is to put the king up high in victory That's what they're hailing, a king, and yet he's on a colt, on a donkey, a young horse. You see, the crowd is overlooking this fact. They want to hear some of the message, but not all of it. If they'd actually studied scripture a bit more and looked at the prophecy in Zechariah, and particularly, say, verse 19, they would have seen that the purpose of the king coming was to take away the chariots and the war horses and the battle bows from Israel and bring peace to the nations. Bring peace to the nations. The idea of peace uh, in God's understanding of peace, shalom, is not just the absence of war, not a quiet battlefield but still in, with scars and everything over it. 
but actually wholeness and completeness, things as they should be. That's the image in Zechariah 19. Not of victory, but bringing peace. And everyone seems to be overlooking this part. And so Jesus has put it clearly there in the action because there's so much noise and so much excitement about kingship that he needs them to see something and he wants us to see it as well in the kind of king that he is. He knows the disciples have been failing to see this because even as he said he's going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man must give his life as a ransom for many, they argue about power, don't they? Who's going to be the greatest? See, they can't hear what kind of king Jesus would be in all of his majesty. Just ponder this scene for a moment. This Jerusalem that Jesus is going to enter. And it's a, a Jerusalem throbbing with people. Thousands of people remembering salvation. Of the threats to Jesus' life that are going to increase. And Jesus accepting the praise of the crowd that he brings salvation. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus sits himself on a young colt, a donkey. What's the message that Jesus wants us to hear? We won't hear it if we ignore where he sits himself. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is challenging our understanding of a king or a leader. Leadership is very important, and here he is challenging it so that we get a better understanding of who God is and who we are. Because this is not the kind of king or leader that the authorities or the crowds really expected, and maybe we don't either. Now, there is one thing in this whole scene that everyone's agreeing on, and that is that the whole point of this is about salvation. Uh, that's what's going on in Jerusalem in the Passover. That's what's going on for the people who are calling out in verses uh, 9 and, uh, and so on. Hosanna. Hosanna means save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. We know that from Luke's gospel that the Pharisees, the authorities, say re rebuke say to Jesus, I will rebuke your disciples for calling this out about salvation. They know what's going on here about salvation as well. They're nervous about the authorities. You see, what's on about here in this leader is salvation, and that actually does tie in with leadership in general. When we look for leaders, we are looking for them to somehow bring something better, to bring us out of our situation of, of something that is not great to something better. We're about to enter that season again, aren't we, in politics? And what will it be about this year as we have elections both here in, in Victoria and, and federally? What will the phrases be about? Who can improve the economy? Who can give me a better life? They're actually concepts of salvation, aren't they? We're looking for a leader who will fix the climate or something. We're looking for a leader who brings salvation, who betters things. We don't vote for someone who might make it worse. Or if you're into sport, what is it about your team? You want them to bring salvation. You want them to win. You want them to defeat the other team. It's vicarious. It's something that you can get into with them, isn't it? 
This is the majesty of leadership, the power that brings salvation, that brings something greater and better. But when the leaders and the crowd see Jesus and then what happens as he enters Jerusalem and afterwards, they actually see weakness and they all turn their backs because what they saw in Jesus was not the kind of salvation they thought they needed. Both the crowd and the leaders were going to focus on the external circumstances that they thought they needed salvation from, particularly from getting out from under Rome. See, the Pharisees all along, if you've been reading the Gospel, they think they know how to defeat the Romans by bringing together everyone spiritually in their own spiritual strength. There was a belief that if, uh, amongst uh, one of the teachings, that if they could get every Israelite to uh, hold the Sabbath day properly, that that would force God's hand to bring the Messiah. No wonder they're so opposed to how Jesus acts on the Sabbath. Because for them, spiritual strength was how they would control things and then get out from under Roman authority. How dare Jesus think he has authority over us? We know what we need. And Jesus, if you'll be a saviour like I want you to be, a leader like I want you to be, then then it'll all work well. That's the Pharisee point of view. But the crowd has also got that kind of mentality. They are under the thumb. They are under the pressure of Rome. They want salvation from their material situation, a physical thing around them. And they're hoping for brute, uh, brute strength to do it, just to crush this power. Yeah. Like us who just want to get rid of that leadership that we feel is not leading us well. We just do that by power. Jesus, you're useful to me if you can save me from these circumstances, say the crowd, from a difficult spot. But as we know, as the account goes on, the crowd will dwindle away because Jesus doesn't turn out to be the kind of leader they wanted. But in both those cases, can you see that salvation has become external? It's about the circumstances I'm in. God on my terms, God on their terms, so that they can bring salvation in their external uh, circumstances. But actually, there's a deeper issue going on here, and that's why Jesus has to show us in what he does. This is the challenge that Jesus is sending here. What they should have seen is the majesty of Jesus with meekness, not weakness. With meekness, not weakness. See, meekness is the word here, and if they'd got that, if we get this, it has, it would have had a very powerful effect in our life and the way that we represent our king. The, the, the word meek, which isn't being used here, but I think is, captures this, Meek is an interesting word because in the Greek word, it was, in the Greek world, it was a meek. The word meek is associated with a wild animal that's been captured and then tamed. So you could imagine a wild horse that's been captured and then uh, tamed so that that horse can be used for a particular purpose, trained. Now think about that for a moment. If I was to put the word meek to you, Perhaps the first animal that would come in mind is a mouse or something small, something skittish or mild or timid. But in the original, it referred to a highly trained animal. A highly trained animal. Think about that horse again. 
See, a horse that has been tamed in that sense hasn't lost its energy or vigour. There's still will and passion. What they have been is disciplined. They have channeled that, that power has been channeled into a different direction. See, a person who is meek doesn't lack a spine. A person who is meek has as much feeling and determination as anyone else. But a person who is meek doesn't rear and buck to unseat his or her rider. They use their power for greater good. If you're familiar with the Narnia stories, you'll remember at, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's that moment where the beavers are introducing the children to Aslan. And Susan discovers that Aslan is a lion, a great lion. And uh, Susan's really distressed by this because she says, I thought Aslan was a man. I mean, if he's a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what we're talking about here with meekness. Not safeness, but goodness. Why use the word meek for this scene? Well, it's in what actually the crowd are calling out. Because in the crowd calling out, when they call out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you might have a footnote there that tells you this comes from Psalm 118. That's a reference to a particular psalm. That psalm's famous for a couple of reasons uh, here, but also it's the same psalm that a few verses on after that quote, or, sorry, sorry, just before this quote, we have that passage about the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and how marvellous it is in the people's eyes. That's a passage that is refer used in the New Testament to say Jesus, the rejected one, has become the cornerstone and it is marvellous. Just think about that, the irony here that's going on at the moment. The, Jesus... Uh, they are shouting out to Jesus a psalm about salvation and covenant love if you read that whole psalm out. And yet the authorities and the people are misunderstanding how that will come about. They're about to reject the one who God has chosen because he doesn't fit their view of salvation, even though they're shouting out about that same salvation. So why meekness? What is Jesus showing here? What, what are we trying to get here? Well, isn't Jesus trying to show them what the people really need is peace with God? They need to be reconciled with God, not with their situation in Rome. He enters Jerusalem in this position of peace, of offering peace to the people from the king because they need it with God, not their situation with Rome, not their external situation. He doesn't come in with all his might and authority because actually the people that need to change are the very people who are praising him as king, who have missed the point that they are out of fellowship with God and need to be restored. Jesus, of course, could have overthrown them. But in his meekness, he offers them what they really need, a reconciled relationship with God. 
And if they'd seen him on that colt as they should have seen him from the quote from Zechariah, he wasn't coming to give them more weapons of war. He was coming to disarm them so they could have peace with God again. You see, the shalom, the peace that's here, is not like the Roman peace or the Jewish peace that's really after the circumstances being set right. It's about getting back in line with the creator of the universe. And if we don't get this, then we won't be clear on what we're being saved from. In verses 9 and 10, we'll be calling out, Save me, God, but it will be saving me from my lack of money or my lack of fame or my broken relationships. It will be my circumstances. And we'll never be satisfied because we'll just be trying to get God to fit into our view of salvation. But the deeper issue, the, the more personal issues between us and God, being reconciled to him, that's what's the heart of what Jesus is doing here. And when we do get that, when we get God's invitation to be reconciled with him through this king, then Jesus' posture makes perfect sense and we'll be amazed. God is actually offering me peace with him. And actually, if we do get this, the followers who represent the king will be like him, both majestic and meek, will know how to use power for the good of others. This is the character thing that actually, I think, comes into us. Followers do represent a king. That's exactly all leader. That's why you have a leader and you become like them. Sometimes it's really obvious when you're a kid, if Superman is your favorite person or someone else, well, you dress like Superman. But it's external, right? Because if you throw yourself off the, uh, off the two-meter wall, you don't fly. It's only external. You go to the football game and everyone's wearing the same mask of their football hero. But it's just on the outside. Put them on the field. They won't kick the same way, will they? See, this is not superficial like that. Jesus actually wants us to have his same character as we represent him, both majesty and meekness. That's our gospel testimony. And we have, as God's people, got that wrong over the years, haven't we? There are many opportunities to see that failure in the history of, our, of the Christian church, whether in the Crusades or whether in the fact that the Western church somehow ended up seeming to be the church in the East and the North and the South as well. We didn't always seem to go to serve but to control. But I want to put it to you, if, like Jesus came, we represent him the same way, and we get that this is personal, then the majesty and meekness we see in Jesus here will be in our missional attitude as well. As a representative of the king, we will have that majesty, the confidence that this is the way, just like Jesus entering Jerusalem despite the threats. He knows this is the way. We know he is king. We join him in this. We know this has been God's plan from the beginning till, uh, and continues until he, Jesus returns. We will have confidence. But we will also have that meekness of Jesus, 
that is seen in the fact that his message is of reconciliation with God, that God is offering that, not to crush and break us, but offering peace, power for the greater good. It comes out in Jesus' action here. He needs to represent that to people because it's so foreign to us, the idea that one who lead might serve and that the followers might do the same. So when you think about how you're relating to those around you, don't just think in your uh, words, but also in your actions. Are they also speaking this kind of meekness? I was reflecting during the week that as we seem to be moving out of the, the tougher stages of the COVID situation, I wonder how much of a mission opportunity that was for us in our local situations. Did we actually approach it from a position of peace with God or were we just as afraid of our neighbours and clamouring for salvation? Did we let circumstances determine who we were and we, did we misuse power in that space rather than being meek? Did we just look like our neighbours throughout this pandemic? Or could we say we look like Jesus, confident in him, but seeking to serve, to use our power for good, because we knew that actually despite the circumstances, we were sure and certain. What would that have looked like? Maybe that's something you can reflect on this rainy afternoon when you can't go out. Because that's what Jesus wants us to do, to reflect him. And he wants us to reflect that because that's the, almost the last image we have of Jesus, or one of the very key ones we have, of being both majestic and meek. As we represent him, we still have before us that final picture that is very much like what we have here. If we were to go to Revelation chapter 5 and we join John as he sees a vision of who Jesus is, In Revelation chapter 5, we meet John crying and bewailing because there is a scroll of salvation that can't be opened. Uh, Seven uh, seven seals that can't be opened. But those around say, don't weep. Because see, the Lion of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's opened the scroll and it's seven seals. And so John looks to see the Lion of Judah and he sees... A lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. See, the same Jesus we're heading towards is this majestic and meek lion and lamb that is built into salvation. It's built into our missional message to the world in how we act and speak. This is the greatest kingly triumph. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus teaching us so clearly of the kind of character that he has, that he is both majestic and yet he uses his power to bring good for us. Uh, Father, thank you that we do know peace through Jesus who willingly entered Jerusalem to reconcile us to you. And may that come through our very being, not just superficially, but into our very character. 
that as we represent Jesus as his followers, that the same confidence and yet the same meekness might be evident in us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb. Amen.